TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Scott Stoll about how he got into graphic design as a teenager, the importance of language in graphic design, and what it's like when a client calls to break up with you. Yeah, we want to go in a different way. And I thought, oh, well, we could do it in a different way. Like, we could be different. You know, I could change. No, I really want to go into No, come on. It's not, it's not you. It's us. Here's Debbie Millman. The video for this talking head song, Nothing But Flowers, did something no one had seen before. As David Byrne sang, the lyrics appeared in time with the music. Now that wasn't new exactly, but now the words had personality. They curved, they danced, they scooted and cascaded across the screen. Think of it like karaoke on hallucinogens instead of alcohol. That type was set in motion by Tibor Kelman and Emily Oberman at M & Company, with assistance from a young intern named Scott Stoll. Scott later went on to work for Colors Magazine in Rome, and in 1998, he founded his own studio, Open. Nowadays, Scott and a group of collaborators do print, broadcast, and web design. They've worked for Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Whitney Museum, Bravo, MTV, Good Magazine, and The Nation, among others. And while Open does all kinds of design, they still use words to make beautiful things. Scott Stoll, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So, Scott, is it true that when you were in the fifth grade, you devised a two-color printing system that involved putting photocopies through a mimeograph machine? Uh, yes, it's true. I think <laughs> for our audience, we have to explain half the words in that sentence. <laughs> I think you might be right. So, um, fifth grade, no. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was when we had an education system in America. No, I was in the fifth grade, and I forget the circumstances, but I made some sort of newspaper and I remember we would get these handouts from, okay, now a mimeograph machine was this thing that teachers used to use to print things on paper, which, of course, they don't do at all anymore. They were always purple for some reason, and they were wet. 
like they would come out damp and they smelled weird. They smelled great. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like a lot of things that smell weird smell great. And I remember realizing, I guess, what's that, 11 years old or something, um, that those were purple. But then they had this photocopy machine and those were black. And my dad worked as a printer for many, many years. So by that time, I was already familiar with the idea of sort of multicolor printing. And I thought, well, I could just make like the text black and the drawings purple. So I guess I made color separations because I made mechanicals in two different places and then put those things together and just ran it through both machines. And I, I thought I had invented it at the time. Purple and black. There we go. So what were you actually making? It was a school newspaper, I remember. It was Highland Elementary School. And I remember it was called the Highland Herald. Now, from what I understand, this this was the beginning of your freelance career. Um, <laughs> you did projects for school groups, the local television channel, while you were in high school. And I understand you, you didn't even take one studio art class before college, but yet you got into the Rhode Island School of Design with a fully-fledged portfolio of graphic design that included logos, posters, and packaging. Yes, I thought you'd like that. How on earth did that happen? The only thing I can really remember ever wanting to be is a designer. Really? How uh, did you even know about design at that age? Well, okay, so uh, I mentioned my dad. He worked as a printer for many years. And to be more specific... He was a he, pressman, right? No, not a pressman. He was a stripper. Oh. And now another word to explain for the audience. <laughs> um, the guy, basically between the artwork and the press was the stripper. And you would refer to them now as pre-press people. Anyway, so from an early age, my dad basically worked in printing. And so he worked at a bunch of different places for many, many years. And he would bring home stuff from work, like anybody brings stuff home, like, hey, kids, play with this. But of course, for me, it was press sheets and color separations and samples of books that they had printed. And I remember him bringing home this thing that was, it must have been like a sample for a printer or a pre-press house or something. It wasn't a proof, but it was like a painting of, I remember it being like a college campus, like people walking around in a space, but it was separated into the four process Ooh. plates onto these four pieces of acetate or plastic. So you could kind of peel one up and say, oh, now everything's green or like peel it up. Everything is magenta now. And so... I just remember playing with that for – must have been years. I don't know. So this idea of different levels of something coming together through a production process, I guess, was just something I was – I knew about right? you know, or thought about. You know, so there, obviously there's other parts to it. Like I remember thinking, you know, where does – where do the letters come from? You know, and I didn't understand that there was typesetting or whatever. But the point is that I, I think I knew what design was on some level for a long time. And, and back to your question, you asked about freelance work. My first freelance job was for the local cable television channel in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, Channel 43. How did you get that project? Did um, you cold call them? No, they broadcast out of the high school. I mean, it was one of these things where there's a studio in the high school and, like, kids would work on it and stuff. But it was a real channel, you know, and a lot of the times it was, like, community calendar and there's this just type scrolling. But they did election coverage one year and I did the backdrop for the set which was like election news. And I remember to this day, set in universe. I was going to ask, what did you set it in? And set in universe, 55 probably. Nice. And if memory serves, I made election news into one word, you know, with the N in the middle. No intercap. And uh, it had a map of the town or whatever. And I think I got 50 bucks for that. And I was like 12 or 13. And I mean, I guess that's my first professional work. Now, there's an article on Imprint, print magazine's blog site, 
that is featuring a story about your first portfolio, which is really charming. I couldn't help but think that when I was looking at one of the posters, there's a Shakespeare poster in that early portfolio. And I was wondering if it could have been influenced by Milton Glaser. It was a complete Milton Glaser ripoff. Okay, then. (laughs) Yeah, no, 100%. It's funny you picked that one out. I remember when I sent them that image, because it's the first time I had pulled those slides out in 20 years or whatever, being like slightly embarrassed that that was in there because of that. Because of the Milton? Yeah. I don't remember if there was a specific piece that I ripped off or whatever, but it was totally a Milton Glaser phase. And I remember having the Milton Glaser poster book, which was like a kind of 80s era book of his posters. And uh, the type was this sort of Futura type that looked very 80s at the time. And yeah, totally influenced at that time. I can't help but consider how remarkable it is to be in high school and have people like Milton Glaser as an influence. I didn't really know about the world of design or any of these stars in the discipline until well after college. So it's pretty wonderful to have that as part of your growing up experience. I mean, you mentioned I didn't take art per se in high school, but, you know, I was also one of the AV nerds in high school. Surprise. I could see that. Yeah, exactly. And um, the guy who ran the sort of AV department of the library and with all the projectors and all that stuff, he also taught graphic design. He was a graphic designer. I guess his day job was at the school, but he also did graphic design. And uh, really funny, great guy. And uh, I mean, I had already known about graphic design, but then when I found out they were teaching a class, I said, okay, let's do it. And I did it. And I took it as an elective. And I took it more than once, at least one time. I think I was the only student. And I basically just hung out with Bob, this guy. And uh, he taught me stuff and we looked at stuff. And it was a whole kind of cultural moment for me that was really interesting. I remember either telling him or him telling me about Laurie Anderson and us listening to Laurie Anderson albums, but uh, talking to somebody that was not only a professional designer, but was like a really nice guy to deal with and involved in all these different things. I, I think that combined with the growing up exposed to printing and just in general, the idea of kind of visual stuff that wasn't exactly art per se, that, I don't know, kind of led me on the path that I ended up on. Now, You were born in Lowell, Massachusetts, and aside from a brief moment when you were a little kid and wanted to be an architect, because you thought Mike Brady looked cool at his drafting table, and two minutes in high school wherein you wanted to be a lawyer, it seems that you always wanted to be this graphic designer that you were preparing for even in high school. Yes. Did you know how talented you were then? Did you feel that design was your calling? Did you feel that you did this better than anything else? The first question I can't answer, because anybody who knows how talented they are, this problematic. That it was my calling or that I did it better than anything else? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I like doing it better than anything else. And I really enjoyed it. And it was the kind of thing where even to this day, as soon as I finish my work and I think, oh, I want to do something fun, the first thing I think of is to do some work because it's not really work for me. So if you look at that portfolio that you mentioned that I had in high school, I mean, there was that Milton Glaser ripoff, of course. But then, I don't know, I made up some logos. I redesigned the Kodak film packaging and did the flat art for it, by the way, with the key lines and everything. And wow. um, and that was all, you know, rub down type and zip tone and many other things that people don't know about anymore. But so for me, it's just fun. And I think that to this day... The work I do best is the work that I have fun doing. And a lot of times that's things that I don't know how to do yet. 
because that, I think, as a designer is part of what we do is figuring stuff out. Well, you have a, a real history of taking on challenges that you've never done before without any what appears to be fear about how they're going to turn out, but we'll get to that in a little while. In the meantime, I have a, another question for you regarding that early experience, and it's, a, I think, a really important one. Mike Brady? <laughs> what, that I thought he looked cool or something? Yeah. Um, really? Mike well, Brady? I didn't think Mike Brady looked cool. Mike Brady was not cool. I mean, that's the definition of the Mike Brady character, right, is that he's just there to tell them not to play ball in the house. But I guess looking back at Mike Brady, I think, hey, he could work at home. He gets to work in that cool room with a desk that you stand up at. It was a cool room. Right. It was that a cool room. That is at this – of course, as we know now, there's like no front wall on that room, you know, and it's just facing the cameras, you know, so who knows what it really but looked like. But I loved like. that perspective. Exactly. We were shooting over his desk. And so he's probably staring at some calendar or whatever on the wall. But the idea that you could work hard but not in the way that everybody else works and – Again, part of that is they picked that he would be an architect to maybe make the character more interesting or sympathetic or whatever. He wasn't like a bank adjuster or whatever, you know. But um, the idea that the tools were different and what he did was different and whatever, I think that's all part of what we do now. But I just – in the end, architecture wasn't the thing for me. And then you mentioned in high school, the idea of being a lawyer was really interesting too. But I think that was just about – acting smart and standing in front of people and persuading them of things. Sounds like a With, designer. Exactly. So then that we got that covered already. Did it upset you when Greg Brady took over Mike's office when he wanted his own room for a little while? <laughs> I guess so. But it was a kind of a cool room too. That was a cool room, but it it, it bothered me a little bit. But yeah. the, the, the reason I wanted to ask you that was to take me into the next question, which is how much of your work is influenced by popular culture. There seems to be a real thread through so much of what you do that uses cultural norms in a completely interesting way to capture people's attention. I'm a big fan of cliches. You could take that the wrong way. Obviously, I don't like things that are stupid or whatever, but I do like things that are stupid. I was going to say, really? I yeah, I also <laughs> like things that are stupid. But, but something that communicates to a lot of people in a very straightforward way that they can get something out of is not something that I am uninterested in. And I think that a lot of designers, a lot of people in general, they trade in this idea of exclusivity. So it's basically like, hey, you're in with the in club. You understand this thing. Come on in here. You know? So it's like the velvet rope outside the nightclub you know, or whatever. And I have no interest in that. It's totally boring to me. And I think that every single thing we make is an opportunity to share something new with people. So this idea of popular culture I mean, it's not so much that we're doing stuff about TV shows necessarily all the time, but the things that I like the most and the things that I like to do the most are the things that are sort of crossing in or out of the mainstream. So like right on this edge. It's more interesting to me when we're taking something and moving it from one audience to another. This idea of taking something that's super broad and, and understandable by a lot of people and maybe showing someone how it could be smarter or more interesting – or vice versa, taking something that's really well-known to a certain group of people and saying, oh, let's open this up to everybody and let everybody find out more about it. That's super interesting to me. Let's talk for a few moments about that internship I referenced in our introduction. So I understand that you saw an article about M & Company and Tibor Kalman in an issue of ID Magazine during your freshman year at the Rhode Island School of Design. And at that moment, you knew that M & Company was the only place that you wanted to work. 
So in the spring of 1988, you cold called the studio. First of all, I have to say I'm amazed at the research that you did even beyond what I sent you because the details of that chronology are precise. But I will say one thing. There's a step in between the article and the cold call. Okay. So that article, which was written by Chi Perlman, um, later, I think she was an editor at ID and then later became the The editor editor. of ID. So that article, I was just, okay, you know, this is everything I want in life. So that was freshman year. During my sophomore year, Tibor himself went to Boston and did an AIGA lecture. Yes. And that cemented your desire to work for him. Exactly. And two friends of mine, the three of us decided, let's do a road trip to Boston and go see this thing. So one friend was Kira Alexandra, who later on worked at M and Company with me, actually helped me work there. And then I helped her work there. And now she does amazing other kinds of work. And another friend, Leslie, who went and worked for me at Colors later. But we all decided to go to this talk. And I remember it was like, this exists in the world? Like, what is this? It was work that was incredibly well-crafted, really funny, with a crazy person stopping in the middle and showing weird hip-hop videos, and just craziness. And this idea that something could be at this high level, but also so funny, and also so smart, and so reverent and irreverent at the same time, it was just, I mean, there was a whole culture at that time, I mentioned Laurie Anderson before, of like this New York mid-80s kind of Spalding Gray, Laurie Anderson, Philip Glass, whatever world of downtown stuff. And I thought, wow, this is like part of that world that was for designers, you know? And I just thought, okay, this is it, which brought me to that cold call. Who answered the phone? Douglas Riccardi. And how did it go? Give us the the playback here. I called and basically, you know, had the speech ready. What was the speech? You know, hi, my name is Scott Stoll. I'm a student at Rhode Island School of Design studying graphic design, and I'm interested in doing an internship with your studio this summer. Or words to that effect. Douglas was like, cool, send us your work? Douglas responded immediately with, hi, my name is Douglas Riccardi. I'm a designer at Emmon Company, and I went to Rhode Island School of Design. (gasps) How fabulous. How lucky. I guess so, yeah. Did you know Douglas Riccardi was there? No, no. and of course back at that time, we're talking 1988, so it's not like I could just access the alumni, you know, whatever. And these days, as you should, which most people don't, you should do research and say, this guy works there and I'm going to email him directly and whatever. Were you nervous? Was your heart pounding? Were you sweating? No, I don't think I was. At that time, I was just... I guess this is what you're supposed to do. You know, if you want to contact a place, this is what you do. Or just ignorant. I mean, to me, it's like, I would like to work there. I'll ask them if I can work there. Then we'll see what happens. That is the result of good parenting. Hear that, mom and dad? (laughs) That sense of, I'm good and I'm capable and I'm going to just go for it. Well, and I think I I like to take things at face value. So it's like, I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, the answer is you're not hiring anyone. Oh, that's too bad. You know, I mean, I think on Douglas's side, you should ask him because I think on his side, it was the same thing. It was just like, oh, some kid is calling. Yeah, we take interns. Send us your stuff. Okay, bye. No big deal, you know. And I went to New York and met with him and Lisa Lenovitz, who was the studio production manager there. And then, of course, they didn't pay or anything. So it's like, oh, you want to come? Okay, come, you know, be an intern. And then I went there for the the summer and then ended up working. I guess the most significant thing we did was the Talking Heads video. Now, I understand that Tibor offered you a full-time job before you even graduated college, and you turned him down. 
Well, I went back. So I was there for the summer as an intern, and I was an early intern. I did it between my sophomore and junior year. But I was there for the summer and then went back to school. Then the next summer, I think I wrote Tibor and I said, hey, I'd love to come back for the summer or whatever. And he wrote back, sure, okay. And I can't remember if this whole thing was back and forth in the U.S. mail or if I called him or what or if I visited. But I said, yeah, but I really need to get paid you know, because I wasn't paid the first time. And he was just, no. (laughs) Oh, and I said, okay, well, then I can't do it. Really? Yeah. And then I, I mean, I really just, again, on face value, I needed that money. Without that money, I could not do it. So I didn't do it. So I went home and actually worked with my dad for the summer, being a stripper with my father, and then also worked at a design studio in Boston and one in my hometown and stuff like that. But the story you ask about was I went and visited, must have been during that summer, and a friend of mine, David Albertson, who was a year ahead of me at RISD, he had gotten a job at Emin Company. He was working there full time. And, you know, I went to visit and we were talking and stuff. And Tibor calls me into his office and he's like, hey, do you want to work here? And I said, well, yeah, like I did already, you know, like I would love to. And he's like, okay, you start Monday. And I was like, uh, and I was between my junior and senior year. And I think for one night, I kind of thought, oh, that'll be really awesome, you know, like, screw it, I'll just go and work in New York. But then I thought, that's a dumb thing to do. I mean, the experience of being in school was so special to me. And If I was going to get a job with this guy without a degree, it's not like he wouldn't want to hire me with a degree. Well, Tibor might not have wanted to. Well, yeah, he was not a big big advocate of necessarily tons of higher education. But so I went back to school. And then when I left school, finally, I went like a week after graduation, went down and met with Tibor. And he was like, so what are you what are you going to do now or whatever? I said, oh, I want to work here. He said, "Okay," And I said, but not yet. And I said, I'll see you in six weeks. You know, you're burnt out from school. I couldn't start again right away. So I went back July 23rd, 1990, and I started work full time. What was the most important thing you learned from Tibor? The most important thing I think I got out of working with Tibor was this kind of relentlessness. If you looked at anything that came out of that studio, there was no decision left unmade. You turn over a thing... The little line on the back with like the union printing logo and whatever the copyright line was like either interesting or funny or beautiful or all of the above. Nothing was, oh, nobody's going to care about that. Everything was considered. Everything was decided. And that is something that to this day I don't think I'll ever forget. I think at the same time, there's another thing I kind of got from Tibor that in a way I work very differently And at that time, Tibor was also the creative director at Interview Magazine. So he would go there half the day or once in a while for the whole day or whatever and then come back and he sort of had two jobs. And so because he worked for Interview Magazine, he had an account to be able to sign at restaurants. So at Odeon, for instance, this restaurant, he could just sign for dinner there or whatever. And so it was just me and him one night and we go to Odeon and Tibor got a little drunk. And the thing is Tibor was kind of a cheap drunk. In the sense that like one or two glasses of wine and he would be fairly inebriated as it were. <laughs> so whatever. But I'm free dinner, you know, hanging out with Tibor, whatever. And I remember he turns to me at one point during this dinner and he says, you know what? Everything I've ever done in life is motivated by this. And he holds out his middle finger. By which he meant that he was always protesting something. 
And I think that started as like being a student in the 60s and dropping out of school and whatever. And so he was always acting in opposition to things. And I think that motivated a lot of the work that we did, whether it was Benetton stuff where it was, you know, obviously he's working for a big corporation, but it was all about like, let's change stuff, let's fight stuff, let's do something differently, you know, that everything sucks. And I think for my part, I mean, that was fine, but I always like to act in a positive way. So it's like we can complain about everything being bad, but then what's the good thing? So can't we just have already complained about stuff and then say, well, let's do things then in a way we think that they should be? So that part of working with Tibor was, you know, obviously a motivator of a lot of work. But for me, I, th- I think very differently. So three and a half years after you joined M & Company, Tibor invited you to move to Rome with him to become the art director at Colors magazine where he was editor-in-chief. What was that like, picking up and moving to Rome and becoming the art director of a really provocative and sort of maybe it's a little bit far-reaching to say world-changing, but design world-changing magazine? First of all, I had to think about it. It was funny because Paul Ritter, who had been the art director or designer already in New York, Tibor asked him to go, and then he didn't want to do it. And then you were he, sloppy seconds. Yes, I was the other person that worked there at that time. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> okay, uh, you. And I just remember at the time I had never been to Italy, never lived anywhere like that, and I kind of thought, oh, but I have all these friends and contacts and whatever, and what would I do if I move away? You know. So I had to think about it for a while, but then of course that's crazy. Like you do that thing. If somebody asks you to do that, you do that. It was a fantastic experience. I mean, there were parts about it that were very funny because Tibor wanted to work like we were still in New York, but in Rome. And like, (laughs) you don't work like New York in Rome. And so there were some cultural inconsistencies, let's say. The thing that was amazing about it, and nobody believes this, is that Benetton had nothing to do with it at all. Nothing. I mean, Olivier Toscani was Tibor's boss. And then, of course, Luciano Benetton and all the suits, as it were, were his boss. But Anyone beyond Toscani never saw the magazine until it showed up printed on their desk. Was there ever any sense of outrage at some of the content? I'm sure. I mean, I'd, we, we were buffered from it. But I'm sure these guys are calling down like, what the hell are you doing? We're going to send this out with the catalogs and like you've got naked people in here and whatever. But I mean, clearly the benefits of it outweighed anything like that. And they were, I mean, used the word fearless before. I mean, I think they were fearless in a way to just sort of say, oh, let's try this thing. I do remember one time, and I've told the story to others before, but I remember Toscani would come down to Colors maybe once a month or something or sometimes more often to meet with Tibor, and they would go into his office, closed door, and then it was like a cartoon fight was going on. There. <laughs> you would just hear like, you know, the bowling ball rolling out of the closet and then like the weird like cloud with arms and legs sticking out of it, you know? And I remember one day Tibor comes out after a long meeting with Toscani, and Toscani had left. And actually, I went into the office with him, and he's sitting there at his laptop, like, typing a fax, not an email, of course. And I said, you know, what's up? How did it go? And he turns around to me, and he goes, I hate him like you hate me. (laughs) But you didn't really hate him. No. Or did you at the time? But no, of course not. I mean, Obviously, Tibor was a difficult, complicated person to work with, but that's a perfect way to describe it. Tibor didn't hate Toscani either, but he hated him like I hated Tibor. I like see. You know what I mean? So yeah. that that role of kind of like you've given me so many opportunities, but at the same time, I feel like you're thwarting them every day, you know? But that part of that is just not being able to see past what you're doing at the moment. So one year later, you leave Rome to go back to New York. 
you worked at home for a few years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Would you call it freelancing? Or yeah. I mean, you started your own company, Open, yes. on January 1st, 1998. And what made the change from freelancing to Open? Or what made you decide to make that change? When I first left Colors and basically left Tibor, I wanted to just be on my own and do my own thing. And so, you know, I lived in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, worked out of my house. And after three years or so, I mean, I started getting not big clients, but projects that were fairly substantial. I had an intern for a while. I had freelancers in my house. And after a while, it just felt like this is not going to work out much longer. Like, this is weird. Had you already started doing the covers for The Nation at that point? No. The Nation was basically – so a lot of things happened at the same time. So this idea of the – not wanting to work at home anymore because three and a half years, it's like, you know, That's a long time. you become friends with the UPS guy and like you need a life. And so there was that. There was the Nation Project came, which we can talk more about. But then also I met a friend, Chip Wass, the illustrator, who is fantastic. And so Chip needed a poster designed. And then Chip would come to my house and we would work on this poster together and whatever. And then I remember at a certain point, Chip said, yeah, I've been thinking about getting a studio space because he worked out of his house for probably a decade at that point. And I said, yeah, me too. Next thing I know, we're meeting with real estate agents. And so we shared the space for several years. And um, so working with somebody who I wasn't exactly working with was really helpful for me to just get out of the house and do a new thing and – At that time, I realized that when I moved out of the house, I didn't want it to just be my name on the door because I knew that things were going to change and it was going to be about working with other people and especially with the nation covers starting. I wanted to be sort of a thing, like an entity that wasn't just about a person. That's why I decided to make it a studio and give it a name and all that stuff. So talk about how the nation deal happened. You designed the covers for the nation magazine For six years, you did over 250 covers. How does something like that happen? How does somebody get a gig like that? The Nation project was a very particular kind of project in that the Nation itself has been around for over 100 years, 150 probably. It was basically a newspaper when it started. And for many, many years, it was in magazine format, but it just had text on the cover like a little newspaper. And the format was designed by Milton Glaser and Walter Bernard. And Milton himself did the covers for several years before us. And then we got the job because Nicholas Blechman, who was also connected with them and I think had done some covers and had done some illustration for them. I had done some illustrations for the New York Times op-ed page for Nicholas. So I guess they were looking for somebody to do covers full time and he recommended me. So that's the connection. It was really that I had done a few things for the New York Times and they said, oh, well, let's try this out. So the deal with the covers, yeah, it was just once a week, only the cover. And I think we had to do a couple of pieces of spot art inside. But that's it. What made you decide to stop? I'll be honest. I was not the one that decided to stop. Was it heartbreaking when they told you? Well, it's funny because so Katrina, the editor of The Nation, who's fantastic and you see her on TV all the time still, and the magazine is still great. I have a lifetime free subscription, which they'll probably cancel if they hear this now. But I think it was just time for a change for them. 
we had been almost 300 covers, I think, and six years, and the studio was really different at the end from the beginning. And I think at a certain point, people want to make a change. I still remember that phone call because it's totally the breakup call. So I remember, yeah, we want to go in a different way. And I thought, oh, well, we could do it in a different way. Like, we could be different. You know, I could change. No, I really want to go into – no, come on. It's not, it's not you. It's us. You know, this whole thing. Ugh. But it was fine. I miss it in some ways because this idea of a weekly deadline – I mean, obviously, it's a motivator. But a client that doesn't pay a ton of money and has very little time but is really interested in the content is just a gift. And so – to this day, I love about a third of the covers we did. A third of them are okay. And a third of them we didn't put a design credit on. Because <laughs> the next week, there's just another one. So it's right. fine. Now, you've also done quite a lot of work in the magazine field in general. And you helped found Good Magazine. You were the founding designer for Good Magazine. And in looking at so much of your work, whether it's for The Nation, whether it's for Good, whether it's for The New York Times, it seems that your most indispensable asset is language. It's funny. It's witty. It's clever. There's usually a riff of cultural relevance somewhere hidden in there or outright out there. I've heard that you've said that graphic design is how we speak to each other. Is that something that you really feel is how your work works? Yeah, I mean, I have said that. I think that, for me, graphic design wouldn't exist without language. I mean, obviously, we do things that are pictures. We do things that are abstract or whatever. But I think that when most people, regular people, not designers, look at something, they think, what is this thing? And they want to read it. And you can make something totally abstract, but people are always going to look for the caption or something or, you know, they go to the museum and there's some weird painting and they look for the tag on the wall like, what is it? Oh, okay. Now I kind of get it or maybe we don't. And I think that our role as graphic designers is to help that language communicate. So if we can make something look like what it's about or make something feel like what the person is saying or help those people find their voice – or figure out what they should look like or anything like that, that's when I think we're doing our job. And I think that that connection between people is, to me, the most rewarding part. So if we're doing something and we write the language and if it's funny and someone laughs or if it's interesting and somebody gets something out of it, that to me is the payoff for what we do. Let's talk a little bit about Good Magazine. You were the designer for the magazine for three years and it was described, or it is described because it still lives online, it's not a printed piece anymore, described as a lifestyle magazine for people who want to change the world. And in that regard, you did talk about the notion of redistributing ideas, very similarly to redistributing wealth. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the obligation that you seem to feel to do good work, no pun intended, because it seems to be a, a, a common denominator in a lot of the projects that you do. There are a few ways of looking at that. I mean, obviously, good work just isn't crappy. People cared about it. It's well-made. Like, I can actually hate everything about something, 
But if it's clear that someone like really wanted it to be that way, then I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'm just not into that, but whatever. That's fine. Good job. But if somebody makes something and it just looks like they didn't care, it goes back to what I said about the work at Emma Company. If there are so many choices that were just left undone or default or there was no intent in the work, then it's just like, well, why should I care about it if they didn't care about it? And with good, what I loved about working with them was that every choice they wanted to make with the magazine was with the intent of making it as mainstream as possible. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to check out of popular culture. We're not like all those evil people. We're over here in our little enclave. It was like, hey, everybody, look, there's people doing stuff. Isn't that interesting? Let's tell you about it. And so that translated to the design for us. We tried to do as many entry points as possible. You could read the thing on the toilet. You could read the thing anywhere you wanted to for any length of time. And we always assumed that no one knew anything about the topic when we started talking about it. In 2008, you won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. And in your acceptance speech, you stated that with hard work, anything can happen. And I think that that statement is really evident in your new book, which you're working on, which I have been really privileged to have been able to get a sneak peek at. So this book that you are putting together, it's a book and a monograph of sorts. It's titled Design for People, Stories About How and Why We Can Work Together to Make Things Better. So tell us a little bit more about the book. This started a few years ago. A very good friend of mine is Alice Twemlow, who runs the SVA Design Criticism Department and is just awesome in general in many ways. Yes. And Alice is one of my favorite writers. Alice, you're the favorite. <laughs> and uh, I went to her and I said, yeah, you know, I really would love to like figure out a book or something, you know, a way to talk about our work. And when you see a designer speak about their work, like do a lecture or something, it's funny because if they just show their work, you think like, oh, great. I'm just looking at their portfolio. Like, who cares? But then if they don't show their work and they're just like, well, I've been traveling and here are some pictures of masks I photographed or whatever. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Great or some, waves I've served. Yeah, whatever. Or some <laughs> manifesto or whatever. Then it's like, wait a minute, but they're a designer. We want to see the cool stuff they made. So I wanted to do a book that does both because I basically, I love seeing people's work, but I also love hearing kind of, well, war stories or like how things happened, like what the process is behind the work. Because for me, the most interesting thing is to hear, well, this is how it happened. So um, the book is intended to do both those things. And at the same time, have this kind of overarching narrative of basically kind of the story we've been talking about, which is like I used to want to do this and then th times change. So it will focus on a, you know, a selection of projects. But the narrative of each project comes from interviewing all the people that were involved in that project. So I'm just one of the people getting interviewed and then the designers, of course – the freelancers, the intern that was there at the time, the client, whatever. And then also we're going to do a call for just people that saw the work. In other words, like, hey, did you watch Bravo back then? What do you think about the graphics? So in a way to have sort of the whole ecosystem of everybody involved in the work from the people that commissioned it to the people that made it. And the nice thing is I've seen some of the transcripts of some of the interviews so far. And like for me, it's amazing because there's stuff that I didn't know about. You know, where it's like this freelancer was talking to this designer and this thing happened and whatever. 
And so it's amazing for me as well. So the idea is that my voice will be there to kind of say, oh, we were doing this at this time and this is what it meant for the studio and whatever. But I would hope that it has a much larger audience. So again, like with all the work that we do, if designers are into it, great. But I would love it if people that aren't designers and who even don't know what design is, maybe they're in high school now, and they read this book and they say, oh, wow, this is cool. These people can get together and make this stuff and this is what it's like. So hopefully there'll be some good stories and some bad stories and, you know, just interesting stuff going on in it. The inclusivity of this book reminds me a little bit of the Times Square installation that you did many, many years ago titled Everybody. That was the first time I became aware of your work. It was actually an installation that you did while you were still at Emin Company, but mm-hmm. it was very much a Scott Stoll production. And with the chairs on the wall that allowed people to sit and be able to look at Times Square, it was one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen in New York City. Wow. And it was usually covered in garbage, too, on the street. There was something so incredibly welcoming about it at a time when New York City wasn't particularly welcoming. I'm very proud of having been involved in that. I remember it was one of those things where basically Tibor said, hey, we got to put something on this thing. Like, we're going to paint it or something. Like, go up there and figure it out. And so basically, I remember going up there and sitting on the sidewalk on 42nd Street for a couple of days, just sketching, like, what should be up there? And finally came upon this idea of, you know, it should be an advertisement for people, for all kinds of people, you know. So everybody came out of that and it became kind of taxicab yellow and whatever. But the chairs were not my idea at all. Andy Jacobson, who was our producer at the time and later became a designer, he was the one that suggested the chairs. And I remember it was one of those things where, yeah, yeah, Andy, oh, oh, yeah, that's actually a great idea. And people sat in them. They were sitting on a wall on a chair. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, Basically, it was a big yellow plywood wall about 40 feet long, 50 feet long, and 20 feet tall. Let me interrupt you for a second. For anybody that hasn't seen it, I want you to go to Scott's Facebook page for Open, and you can see Scott's sketchbooks from that time that not only show the finished piece, but also show all of his ideas in creating the piece, and it's magnificent. So it was this big yellow wall, and it said everybody in the huge black type, and and. We bolted these. They're like the heavy wooden chairs that you see in like police stations and libraries, like those really big heavy wooden chairs, which, by the way, for New Yorkers, it would be interesting to know they were stolen from Joe Franklin's old office. (laughs) Um, Joe Franklin, if you don't know who he was, was a TV host for about 300 years in New York City and had an office in one of the buildings that had been condemned to make way for this redevelopment of Times Square. And so our budget for the Everybody sign was $800. And so Tibor just said, you know, 800 bucks, go figure it out. And I again cold called Van Wagner, the like billboard company, and they painted it. And we got the chairs out of this old office and painted them different colors. And they were mounted maybe three feet off the ground, which I don't know how that was approved, like liability-wise. Yeah. But I loved being able to see the range of people that would sit in those chairs. You'd go there and there would be an ostensibly homeless person sitting there and then a guy in a suit eating his lunch and then like a tourist getting their picture taken. There would be people taking naps. And you step back and it says everybody and that's the caption for the people that are sitting there. And it was just a real privilege to be able to do that. 
I wish it was still there. I do too. <laughs> I, I really do. And what's there now? I guess the subway station is there now. It was a time when the old Times Square was being swept out. Of course, we were part of that by doing this redevelopment. But it had been swept out and the new Times Square hadn't come in yet. So there was this moment of like, what's going on? There's not even any pornography here anymore. <laughs> and uh, so to have this kind of bright, happy, hopeful thing that you could have fun with there, I think was a big deal. And for me, it will always be one of my favorite things I've ever worked I think on. we should start a petition to bring it back somewhere else where it's needed. <laughs> but you know they'll like put it in some park in who knows where, you know, because the, that community board wanted it. That's okay. It has to be in the middle of the world. It has oh, to be at the crossroads of the world you're right about for that. it to work. So, Scott, the last thing I want to ask you about is something that you neglected to send me. And I'm, I'm only saying that so I can point out to my listeners that Scott was the most prepared guest I've ever had. He sent me so much that I could read and research and look at. It made my job a real delight. But nevertheless, I still had to go poking around on my own, as I like to do. And I came across something that was called Scott Stoll's Life List. And I think it was something called 43 Things. Oh, man. <laughs> and it's literally a life list of things that you wanted to be able to do. And I oh, want to just man. read a oh, couple no. of these to you to see if you've accomplished <laughs> any of them. So you wanted to stop procrastinating. You wanted to sleep enough. You wanted to write a book. You wanted to drink eight glasses of water each day, learn to snowboard, learn to fly a plane, get your driver's license again, write more letters, contact old friends, speak Italian fluently, make a movie, be more responsible, learn to say no, drive across the USA, and my favorite, be happy. How'd you do? I think I've done nothing on that list <laughs> except the last one. That's all that really counts, right? Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being on Design Matters. I'd like to let everybody know if they want to find more about Open on the web, they can go to Open's Facebook page. They can also think counterintuitively and go to www.notclosed.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.